Section 21 of Rational Theology and Christian Philosophy, Volume 1, by John Tullock. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 7. Edward Stillingfleet, The Irenicum of a Comprehensive Church, Part 2. 1. Stillingfleet's argument is conducted in two parts, the special purport of each of which will appear in the sequel. In the first chapter, which is properly an introduction to the whole argument, he lays down his plan in a somewhat abstract manner, raising the question of what constitutes the nature of a divine right from the foundation, and following out the general train of thought to its close with a view to all his subsequent course of discussion. The nature of a divine right, according to him, is twofold. Use is first that which is justum. Whatever is just, men have a right to do it. In order to make a thing lawful, or a right to men, it is not necessary that it be expressly commanded, but only that it be not expressly prohibited. According to the sense of use, to use his own language, quote, those things may be said to be jure divino, which are not determined one way or other by any positive law of God, but are left wholly as things lawful to the prudence of men, to determine them in a way agreeable to natural light and the general rules of the word of God. Close quote. Footnote. The edition quoted throughout is that of 1662, printed at the Phoenix in St. Paul's Churchyard, near the little north door. End footnote. Having laid down this principle, he runs out into special illustrations of it, anticipatory of his argument in a somewhat confused manner. His conclusion, however, is pertinent and forcible, namely, that the reason or ground of church government, the ratio regimenis ecclesiastici, is of divine right, but that the special mode or system of it is left to human discretion. In other words, it is a thing forever and immutably right that the church should be under a definite form of government. This is undoubtedly justum. In no other way can the peace and unity of the church be secured. But it is by no means equally indubitable what this form of government must be. The necessary end may be secured under diverse forms, as in the case of civil government. Quote, Though the end of all be the same, Yet monarchy, aristocracy, and democracy are in themselves lawful means for attaining the same common end. So the same reason of church government may call for an equality in the persons acting as governors of the church in one place, which may call for superiority and subordination in another. But use is not only that which is justum, a thing lawfully within man's power, but, moreover, that which is usum, a thing ordered to a man, and so made a debitum, or constituted a duty by the force and virtue of a divine command. And it is in this sense of a use divinum, Stillingfleet admits that the special controversy before him lies. He proceeds, therefore, to expound the nature of a divine right in this sense. Such a right presupposes both legislation and promulgation. There must be an authority entitled to issue the law or command, and the fact of its issue must be beyond doubt. Quote, Whatsoever binds Christians as a universal standing law must be clearly revealed as such. Nothing is founded upon a divine right, nor can bind Christians directly or consequently as a positive law, but what may be certainly known to have come from God, with an intention to oblige believers to the world's end. There are only two ways in which a thing may be thus clearly known to come from God with an intention to bind all perpetually, viz., either by the law of nature or by some positive law of God. The law of nature binds indispensably, as it depends not upon any arbitrary constitutions, but is founded on the intrinsical nature of good and evil in things themselves. 
reason is the chief instrument of discovering the necessary duties of human nature and hence aristotle defines a natural law as that which has everywhere the same force yet it is not bare reason which enforces such a law for every natural obligation is expressive of an eternal law and deduces its true force from thence such a law quote, if we respect the rise extent and immutability of it may be called deservedly the law of nature but if we look at the emanation efflux and original of it it is a divine law for the sanction of this law as well as others depends upon the will of god and therefore an obligation must come from him Close quote. whatever therefore can be deduced from the preceptive law of nature is of divine right because it is thereby clearly apparent from the very nature of the law that it is the divine intention to oblige all persons in the world by it god's positive laws are to be traced to his revealed will in scripture but it does not follow that all divine commands in scripture are immutable and hence of the nature of a divine right it must moreover be clear that it is the divine will that they should always continue this is illustrated by the case of the jews and the ceremonial law it is necessary therefore to determine certain criteria or notes of difference whereby to learn when positive laws bind immutably when not the following are the criteria he enumerates viz first when the original reason of the law continues to subsist and the sabbath is given as a special illustration of this case secondly when god has expressly declared any law to be binding immutably and thirdly when the law or thing commanded in particular is necessary to the existence of the church the being succession and continuance of such a society of men professing the gospel as is instituted and appointed by christ himself it will afterwards appear he says how much these things concern the resolution of the question proposed finally he examines under this general preparatory head of discussion certain pretenses which are brought for a divine right viz scripture examples divine acts or divine approbation he shows conclusively in the case of all of these that they have not necessarily any binding force in themselves in so far as they are binding they involve either moral considerations of universal force or carry with them an explicit sanction binding us to follow it is unnecessary for us to enter into his illustrations of these several pretenses one must suffice of the nature of a divine act supposing it be granted he says that the apostles had superiority of order and jurisdiction over the pastors of the church by an act of christ it by no means follows from this that it was christ's intention that superiority should continue in their successors this intention must be specially proved before it can be allowed any binding force in short that such a divine act has must be derived from a special declaration of the divine will and so any law or obligation there may be in the act falls back under one of the general criteria or tests of a divine right already admitted such is the sum of stillingfleet's discussion as to the nature of a divine right it is a very good specimen of the philosophical temper and skill which he had acquired at cambridge under the influence of the new school of thought there it is also for the most part just and admirable in itself in the opening of his second chapter he restates his special inquiry viz how far church government is founded upon divine right as thus explained by him but he is still detained from immediately entering upon it by a further statement of principles or hypotheses necessary to enable him to carry on his argument these principles are some of them self-evident and must be summarized in the briefest form they may be expressed as follows one that the law of nature where it is clearly intelligible is paramount and cannot be superseded by any positive human or divine enactments 
It is part of the law of nature, for example, that God be worshipped. No human law can set this aside. If the law of nature did not bind indispensably or absolutely, nothing could bind, for all human authority comes primarily out of this law. Men yield obedience to any law only in virtue of the law of nature which binds them to stand to their compacts. Nor is it less true that the clear law of nature is irreversible by divine enactment, for although God's power is infinite, he cannot change the nature of moral obedience. He cannot make good evil or evil good. In confirmation of which statement, he quotes a succession of pregnant sentences from Origen's treatise against Celsus. 2. Things clearly deducible from the law of nature or agreeable to it may be practiced in the church unless otherwise lawfully determined. In other words, men are perfectly free to do what the law of nature dictates, except in those cases where a lawful authority has put restraints upon their natural liberty. And the very existence of men in society implies such restraints. Good and evil thereby receive special meanings. Property is regulated and civil order established, and the restrictions which thus arise are lawful determinations of man's natural liberty. The church is just a society under such special conditions, and has its own appropriate restrictions binding all who enter into it. 3. A principle of determination, or of lawful authority, being recognized in the church, the question comes to be as to its character and extent. The divine will, when clearly manifest, is an undoubted example of such an authority. And the third hypothesis, accordingly, is that, quote, where the law of nature determines a thing, and the divine law determines the manner and the circumstances of the thing, we are bound to obey the divine law in its particular determinations by virtue of the law of nature in its general obligation. Quote. The law of nature, for example, binds us to worship God, and, quote, as we are bound by nature to worship him, so we are bound by virtue of the same law to worship him in the manner best pleasing to him, by sacrifice or otherwise. Close quote. Sacrifice appears to our author unaccountable except by some express divine command. This principle or hypothesis is equally clear with the two former, supposing only the will of God is plainly made manifest. In such a case there can be no question of disobedience. All the difficulty consists in making it clear that the will of God has really declared itself, and to what effect. 4. Supposing that it has done so as to the substance and morality of certain matters, the question arises as to others left undetermined, or as to the special circumstances of those so far determined. All the practical difficulty as to church government and worship, Stillingfleet sees very well lies here in this indeterminate region, indeterminate at least in so far as any clear revelation of the divine will is concerned, and hence his next hypothesis, which leads him into a lengthened discussion. In such a case, he says, it is in the power of lawful authority in the Church of God to determine circumstances left undetermined either by natural law or divine positive law. The lawful authority is the authority of the magistrate. But this is a position he is well aware much controverted, some denying the magistrate any power at all in matters of religion, others granting a defensive protective power of that religion which is preferred according to the law of Christ, but denying any determining power in the magistrate concerning things left undetermined by the scripture. And so he feels himself landed in a field of controversy. It is strange, he adds, that, quote, the things men can least bear with one another in are matters of liberty, and those things men have divided most upon have been matters of uniformity, and wherein they have differed most have been pretended things of indifferency, Close quote. 
he would aim by his discussion to beget a right understanding between the adverse parties rather than to make his way through any opposite party he then proceeds to define the magistrate's power in religion first in its character and secondly in its extent it is a power pertaining to religion as publicly professed and not to religion in itself which is entirely an affair of the conscience men may hold what opinion they will in their minds but the magistrate must have the power of restraining the utterance of opinions inimical to the national religion or the public good which are identified Quote, as a liberty of all opinions tends successfully to the subverting of a nation's peace and to the embroiling it in continual confusions a magistrate cannot discharge his office unless he hath power to restrain such a liberty Close quote. so far stillingfleet does not contribute much to the settlement of a difficult point but he was at this time at least fully on the level of his age as to the principle of toleration the magistrate's power is secondly external and objective about matters of religion and not internal or elicitive Quote, the internal elicitive power lies in the authoritative exercise of the ministerial function in preaching the word and administering the sacraments the external objective power in a due care and provision for the defense protection and propagation of religion Close quote thirdly the power is not nomothetical but administrative it does not consist in making or imposing upon the church new laws but in carrying out recognized divine laws the magistrate cannot alter or repeal any positive divine enactments he cannot add to these of his own accord but he may incorporate them into the law of the land finally in things undetermined concerning the polity of the church he has the power of determination agreeably to the word of god it is the business and duty of pastors and governors of the church to consult with and advise the magistrate but it is from the magistrate alone that any power of coercion or legal obligation comes Quote, the great use of synods and assemblies of pastors of churches is to be as the council of the church unto the king in matters belonging to the church as the parliament is for matters of local government Close quote. all power to oblige all force of law is alone derived from the civil magistrate how far then does the power of the magistrate extend what are the matters left undetermined by the word of god which he may determine in order to the peace and government of the church stillingfleet does not give any clear or complete answer to these questions to have done so would have been to anticipate many of his subsequent conclusions as it is there is an anticipatory tendency in much of this general discussion which is somewhat confusing he contents himself with maintaining that there are things left undetermined or matters of indifferency which may be lawfully subject to the determination of the magistrate without any real restraint being put upon religious liberty a due observance of prescribed rights when the observance is rationally understood as merely a deference to constituted authority which may vary in varying places and circumstances fetters no principle of freedom the very character of the restriction in such a case implies the freedom which lies behind it the very diversity of the ritual indicates that it is freely subject to regulation as may be most convenient and hence the golden rule of augustine in reference to religious rites that every man should observe those of the church he was in he knew no better course for a prudent christian for quote, whatsoever is observed neither against faith or manners is a matter in itself indifferent and to be observed according to the custom of those he lives among Close quote this christian rule he derived from ambrose who pithily expressed it when at rome i fast on the sabbath when at home at milan i do not 
the liberal sentiments of these great fathers inspire stillingfleet to break forth suddenly with some of his ideas of accommodation how happy might the nation be if the spirit of these blessed saints only animated it how might a church be built up imposing nothing but what is clearly revealed in the word of god requiring nothing which from its indifferent nature may not be rendered leaving the service of god free even from particular requirements that may seem agreeable to the divine word when these requirements may give offence inflicting no mulcts or penalties on dissenters till it be seen whether it be willful contempt and obstinacy of spirit or only weakness of conscience which influences them and lastly divesting religion of a multitude of ceremonies the ideal is fine but after all he does not help us much to see how it can be worked one interesting piece of antiquarianism he uses as an illustration he is sure that it is contrary to the primitive practice to impose penalties for nonconformity in habits gestures and the like according to wallafridus strabo there was no distinction of habits used in the primitive church the presbyters did not at first wear any distinct habits from the people it was only gradually that the pallium philosophicum became a distinctive clerical vestment even so late as the time of origin it had not done so universally only when christianity began to lose in height what it got in breadth did the former simplicity of their garments as well as manners change amongst christians not that he would thereby condemn any distinction of habit for mere decency and order but only show that it was contrary to the primitive times to impose any necessity of these things upon men or to censure them for the disuse of them after his lengthened discussion about the magistrate's power stillingfleet reverts to the principles or hypotheses which he was unfolding and in a few sentences adds two others to the series viz that whatever is determined by lawful authority on the church binds the conscience of all within the church in other words subject to its authority and lastly that the determinations of this lawful authority are not unalterable but may be revoked limited and changed according to circumstances this finishes his elaborate preliminary matter his foundation as he calls it and he is at length at liberty to proceed with his inquiry how far government in the church is founded upon an unalterable divine right first in respect of the law of nature and secondly in respect of scripture or positive divine law no fewer than six chapters are devoted to the examination of the subject in the first of these points of view we can only indicate in the briefest manner his course of argument all real interest is concentrated in his final treatment of the question how far any definite polity of church government is laid down in the new testament or in the practice of the primitive church in the six chapters in which he views the matter on the basis of natural law he settles such questions as that there must be a church a society of men joining together for the worship of god and that this society must be governed in the most convenient manner both these propositions are dictates of nature and hence undoubtedly of divine right the next thing which nature dictates is that all things pertaining to divine worship or the government of the church be performed with the greatest solemnity and decency that may be it is quite unnecessary to enter into particular proof of such propositions all who recognize a spiritual power at all will acknowledge these conditions of its recognition the remaining three dictates of the law of nature in reference to the subject are not less unchallengeable but one of them at least raises a more curious and difficult subject of inquiry they are as follows that there must be some arbiter of controversy in the religious society or church that all admitted into the society must consent to be governed by its rules and finally that it must possess a power of censuring all willful offenders against these rules and of expelling them if necessary 
these are all equally conclusions of the natural reason regarding the government of the church as the former conclusions were necessary to its constitution these are necessary to its preservation nature dictates the existence of such a society the general order of the government implying authority in some and subjection in others but nature would be defective if it did not also imply a sufficient provision for the maintenance and preservation of the society thus formed a power therefore to prevent mischief is as necessary in the church as a power to settle things there must be some way of deciding controversies which will arise to disturb the peace of it the necessity for some arbiter of religious controversy raises the usual question as to the limits of church communion and toleration so admirably discussed by hales and chillingworth and taylor the views of stillingfleet are identical with the views already examined of these writers and are in fact directly borrowed from hales whose tract on schism is largely quoted the matters which tend to break the peace of the church are of the nature either of heresy or schism matters of opinion or practice in reference to the former stillingfleet repeats strongly the opinion that mere diversity of opinion is no ground of heresy laying men open to the censure of the church it is only the quote, endeavor by difference of opinion to alienate men's spirit one from another and thereby to break the society into fractions and divisions which makes men liable to restraint and punishment opinionum diversitas et opiniantium unitas non sunt assustata the unity of the church is that of communion and not that of apprehension and different opinions are no further liable to censure than as men by the broaching of these do endeavor to disturb the peace of the church Close quote. schism is a more deadly evil than so-called heresy because more immediately destructive of church communion and yet here he says quoting hales it is also necessary to discriminate schism must be judged according to its grounds and reasons for as it is a sin on the one hand to divide the church so also it is an offence to continue communion when it is a duty to withdraw the separatist is not necessarily the schismatic he lays down the following conditions as to church membership one every christian is bound to join in christian society with others two he is bound to maintain his church communion so long as he can do so without sin and the causes of legitimate offence in a church warranting separation from it are construed very broadly the churches of galatia and corinth are examples that even the rejection of an article of faith may not demand separation it is not enough that the church be corrupt even in definite points of doctrine or practice she must moreover require her members to own expressly these corruptions before a total and positive separation is lawful this is the justification of separation from the church of rome as explained in chillingworth's preface to which our author refers in order to be a member of this church it is necessary to believe that all its doctrines are not only not errors but certain and necessary truths so that in fact to hold that there are errors in the church of rome is actually an ipso facto to forsake the communion of that church he quotes with approval a lengthened passage from hales that the best way to avoid schism is to avoid quote, charging churches and liturgies with things unnecessary to load our public forms with the private fancies upon which we differ is the sovereign way to perpetuate schism unto the world's end prayer confession thanksgiving reading of scriptures in the plainest and simplest manner were matters enough to furnish out a sufficient liturgy Close quote. in this point of view stillingfleet strongly approves of the revisal of the liturgy to meet the scruples of the presbyterians the reformers he argues did not hesitate in composing the liturgy to have an eye to the papists as the only party at that time whom they desired to draw into their communion and the same reason should surely induce the authorities of the church to alter or lay aside the things which gave offence to the presbyterians at the restoration 
having thus dwelt on the matters which lead to controversy within the church he dismisses after a comparatively brief treatment the ways prescribed by the light of nature for ending such controversy the minority must yield to the majority and a right of appeal must subsist to every accused or injured person from the lower and subordinate powers to the higher and superior this is all and not much more remains to be said by any one he urges strongly the necessity of appeal and a graduation of authority in the church against the congregationalists who would leave every particular society of christians to order their affairs according to their pleasure according to the light and law of nature it appears to him quote, that no individual company or congregation hath an absolute independent power within itself but that for the redressing of grievances happening in them appeals are necessary to the parties aggrieved and a subordination of that particular congregation to the government of the society in common he is equally strong that in a state church quote, when the church is incorporated into the commonwealth the chief authority in a commonwealth as christian belongs to the same to which it doth as a commonwealth in other words as he has already asserted in treating of the power of the magistrate the ultimate authority ecclesiastical as well as civil is in the state end of chapter seven part two